Okay, so we're going to read from Luke's Gospel, and we're going to start right at the beginning, chapter 1. That's on page 1025 in the Church Bibles. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then we're going to jump to the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, uh, on page 1061. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same Easter day, Two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Clopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they They crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? 
Thanks, Darren, for reading. John, thank you for reading. I was loving listening to that. I wanted you to keep going, but that's where we're going to stop uh, for, for to, today, and we'll look at these bits. If you've got a Bible in front of you still, turn back to page, I think it's 1025, to the beginning of Luke's Gospel. We're going to start there. Let me add my welcome to Darren's as well. Um, if you've been away over Easter... I hope you managed to, to have a good time, some rest. If you're visiting, I know some people are visiting with us today. Maybe you're, you're back from uni with family or just, just visiting. Lovely to have you. Uh, and if you're new around, please do say hello. We'd love to meet you uh, properly at the end. As Darren said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be, often on Sundays, what, what we do is we, we look at the message of Jesus from the Bible. Um, for the next few weeks, we're going to look and think together a little bit about the Bible itself and still see the Lord Jesus, obviously, as we do that. It's one of, one of the key foundations in the life of any Christian, whether you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian for years, it is the Bible, how you understand it, how you approach it, the way you engage with it. It is foundational to your, to your life uh, as a Christian. And it, in some ways, if you've been um, following any of the, the recent Church of England debates at the moment uh, around the nature of marriage, in, in a sense, if, if you dig down into that, one of the issues really underneath it is an understanding of what the Bible is uh, and how we're to approach it. So lots of reasons for us to, to think about uh, the Bible together. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So do come along on Sunday mornings uh, regularly if you can. And this morning we're going to begin with this idea of the, the Bible and confidence. Is this a book to have confidence in? And what kind of confidence are we meant to have in it? Now start talking about the Bible in any way and it won't look, be long before you come across people or things you read that are questioning its reliability. Three ideas that you might come across. Let, let me mention them. The, the first one is that the Bible is it's not historically reliable. The second one would be that its message is contradictory, that if you read through it, it just keeps contradicting itself. And the third one might be that it's basically just a book of human wisdom. It's a collection of writings. So if you kind of put those together, you could sum them up as saying, what, what is the Bible really? Is the, the Bible is really a collection of myths. It's been woven together by people to communicate maybe symbolically their own understanding of the human condition or about God. You, you could do a little search on the internet and you come out with those three things. That, that's basically why I did. And uh, I saw one book review by Simon Loveday, his, his book, The Bible from Grown Ups from 2016. It's essentially saying that kind of thing. I want to say essentially the opposite uh, this morning. That's what we're going to think about. It is a book to have confidence in. And we're going to dive into these two sections from Luke. And look, here, here's the first thing, just the notice from it is, the Bible wants us to read the Bible as history you can trust. You come to this account of Jesus' life written by Luke and you want to ask, what kind of a book is this? Those first four verses, if you've got the Bible open in front of you, somebody... Um, sitting beside you, you, you could do this, or you could just think, uh, think about it by yourself. Um, just take a moment, what kind of a book does Luke think he's writing? Just have a look at those first four verses. Uh, let me give you 
no more than a minute, if you want to just chat with somebody nearby, what kind of a book does Luke think he's writing? Just, just chat with somebody nearby. Okay, I said no more than a minute. And I realized that I said, read the Bible. I should say, as history, you can trust. But we'll come back to that. Uh, Luke, Luke gives us all sorts of information, doesn't he, uh, in those first four verses. His initial reader, someone called Theophilus, might have been a sponsor, the person who commissioned it. And the reason for writing, did you, did you get that, verse four? Uh, is so that Theophilus could be certain of the things he's been taught. And Luke tells us in verse 1, he's writing about things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Uh, And you get what that means. He's linking these events he's going to write about in his gospel account to promises that were made in the past. And God's promises to his people in the Old Testament. Something promised has been fulfilled and he's going to tell us about that. And he explains as well, just in a little way, his research and writing methods. Do you notice that, verse 3? He talks about there was careful investigation. He investigated things. It wasn't a rushed job. He, he checked stuff and he tells us why he investigated everything from the beginning of this account. He went back to the beginning of it, investigated it uh, carefully, and then he tells us he put it into an orderly account. If you like, he got all the material. He didn't just slap it all down. He's arranged it in a way for us. He's thought, I, I could, how will my readers be able to read this material through? The way if you're at school or, or, or college and you're writing an essay, you've got to order it in a way so that the person reading it understands it. Not just slap down. That's what, that's what Luke's done. In other words, though, as you put those things together, Luke doesn't think he's writing up a myth. What we've got in front of it is no mere work of kind of theological artistry, although there's almost a an artist's skill in his composition work in terms of arranging it all for is is beautifully written. But it's no mere work of theological artistry. Luke's writing about things he says happened in history. Theologian Don Carson, writing about the, the whole of the Bible, says the Bible as a whole tells a story. And that story takes place in time and space. These are things that happened. If you'd been there you would have seen them. That's what we're being given here. The Bible is deeply grounded in history. And that's important. These are real things that happened. But is it reliable? Where did Luke get his information from? He tells us, verse 2, doesn't he? 
uh, those who from the first were eyewitnesses. And by eyewitnesses, he means uh, people with personal, first-hand experience. Those who, who know about the things that happened first-hand. Now, some will dispute this, but uh, again, the New Testament scholar Richard Baucom, uh, he argues persuasively the Gospels were written within the living memory of the events they recount. Here's the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. Who were these eyewitnesses? Oh, it might obviously include the 12 apostles, the, the apostolic message, but uh, I think you find probably what our gospel writers particularly and some others are doing, they're, they're naming some of the sources they have. In our second reading, and we'll come back to it in a little bit, we have someone named Cleopas. He never appears anywhere else as far as uh, I understand. Why does he get named? Why just drop in that name Cleopas? I think it's because he's one of Luke's sources, one of the, the eyewitnesses of this conversation we'll look at a little bit later. And other gospel writers will do that. In John, we're, we're told about Jesus going to go to Bethany, and it's the home of Mary, and then they'll put in brackets, well, not actually in brackets, but it's written in our English Bibles in brackets, but there's another line, line John's put in. This this Mary is the one who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried it with his hair. It poured perfume on his feet. He, he gives us that little line. Why are they doing that? They're, they're telling us their sources. These are people that the initial readers would have known about. You see what the writers are doing. They're saying you can go and check these things out. So you can think about it this way. You, you might not know this, but there's a new film out. There's a new Super Mario film that's out at the moment. It looks awful to me. I just look at that. The colors are too bright. I know the, the volume will be too loud. The action will be non-stop. I'll be ill just watching it. But if I said, Scott said the new Super Mario film was brilliant, you, you'd be rightly dubious. And then if I said, oh, it's Scott Bamber, the one married to Louise, the youth worker here, you'd think, oh, I know him. Oh, I I generally trust what he says. Oh, I, I could go and check that out with him if he says that. Th that's what Luke's doing and other New Testament writers are doing. I don't think go and see that film. And I don't think, Scott, have you even seen it? No, you don't. <laughs> but you see what the writers are doing? They're giving you the sources. The, the initial readers initially, you, you could go and meet these people. I've not just made this up. That's what the... The New Testament writers are doing. They're giving you the eyewitness. These are, this is history. These are things that happen. You can check it out. Luke's saying, I carefully investigated it, spoke to people you know or could meet who saw these things. The Bible is not a myth, it is deeply rooted in history. We're meant to trust it. And you can trust it. Read the Bible as reliable history. Here's the next thing read the Bible with Jesus at the center. This idea of the Bible having a contradictory message that, that leaves it kind of incoherent in some ways. I think one of the kinds of contradictions you can come across is, and here's one of them, P Peter Williams in his, I think, really helpful book, Can We Trust the Gospels, identifies it. He gives some examples of the kind of contradictions you might 
come across in, in John's gospel, for example. Let, let me mention one of them. There, there's times when we're told things like this in John's gospel. People believed when they saw Jesus' signs, the miracles he did. And then a little bit later it says that people still did not believe even after the signs. And you think, well, what is it? Well, it's just a contradiction. Why are you saying both things? They're, they're opposite. Help, help us out here. Which is it? And if you, if you read John's gospel and other parts of the Bible, you, you'll find a number of things like that. I think Peter Williams is right when he says these are deliberate, apparent contradictions with a purpose. Have you read A Tale of Two Cities? Uh, that novel by... Charles Dickens, do you remember how it starts? Uh, maybe you just know the first line because it gets quoted a lot. I'll mention a few others, but it starts like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Uh, we were all going direct to heaven. And we were all going direct the other way. You don't get to the end of that and say, well, what is it, Charles? Yeah, which, which one is it? This is just a contradiction. I need this resolved before I read on. No, you, you understand what he's doing. He's wanting to grab your imagination right at the start. And he's saying, look, this story in some ways will reflect what feels like the craziness of life. You know, times when two things almost seem to be true at once. It, it feels like this is happening, but then the other thing's happening as well. Football fans know that, don't they? Um, Newcastle and Spurs fans, it feels like the best of times and the worst of times, uh, depending on the week. But you understand how it works. And I think that when you read things like that in the Bible, they're, they're literary ways of communicating with you, grabbing your imagination. But think about this. Don't you feel this? But that's one thing to do, but wrestle with it and if you want more information we've got this book in the bookstore it is worth a read if you want to dig in a little bit more to this do pick up a copy of that book but it may feel it may be that the contradictions feel on the bigger scale perhaps you felt like this like why does the message of the bible say contradictory things about god or at least seem to that god is maybe all about judgment and justice and that he's also about forgiveness and redemption. That the message just doesn't add up. Is he loving or is he judging? Which is he? It feels like a contradiction. And I think it's a problem for us too because we want a way to resolve those things. We really do want justice, don't we? And we really do want some kind of redemption. We, we love it in, in stories and TV programs where somebody seems to find a way back. We want a way to sort out what's wrong, but we want some hope for ourselves too. Does the Bible offer an answer? We come back to that second reading we had from Luke. If you want to find it in the Bible, I think it's on page 1061. It's Easter day, it's the day of resurrection. Two disciples, Cleopas is one of them, and there's another, and they're walking and talking, page 1061, and they're met by Jesus, but they're kept from recognizing him. And they tell him what's troubling them. Verse 21 in that reading. They thought Jesus was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. And if you think what they mean by that, they thought he'd be the one through whom God would fix all the problems with this world. Draw a line of justice under sin. Yet find a way to lovingly to rescue them. Redeem people. But now he died. 
doesn't make sense to them. They can't figure out what's going on. It's just sad. And Jesus steps in and begins to show them how he himself is the one who brings the whole message of the Bible together. See that verse 25? Let me read it for us. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You hear that? Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to get its message, if you want to see its coherence, how it's not contradictory, you'll need to read the whole thing through the lens of me and my cross. You need to read it all like that. Uh, see, and because that's what the whole thing is about. See if this little diagram helps. I sometimes draw diagrams to help me get my head around things. Uh, these two dots, imagine there's these two things that we want. Like, it, there's justice, we, we want things to be sorted out and we want forgiveness. And we know that there's a gap between those two things. Um, genuine justice Genuine forgiveness. There's a gap, and they're not easy to resolve. If you're really going to have justice, then how can there be forgiveness? How can you, how can you bring people back from that? If there's going to be forgiveness, will justice really be done? And I come to the God of the Bible, and I'm looking for some hope. But what I begin to find is, look, as I read it, God's level of justice is not even like mine. As you read the Bible, you think it's way off the scale. It goes way up like this. Uh, and the level of forgiveness that we'll need, the more you get to know yourself, have you found that? It's, it goes much deeper. The things I do wrong, there's the stuff that other people know, and then there's the stuff I really know. You've had that feeling, haven't you? you know, if people knew everything about me, the way I've thought, some of the things I've said and done, gosh, it goes off the scale. And the gap's not as big as I thought it was. The, the gap is, is much, much bigger. Now, if you think what the Bible is saying, the message of the Bible to you, and you think about this if you're engrafted or those of us who are older, if you think the message of the Bible is, here's a list of things to do in order to bridge the gap, the Bible will absolutely sink you. In the end, you won't be able to bear it because it won't be long before you realize I can never do enough. No amount of kindness or meditating or just trying to be calm or responding in different ways will ever bridge that kind of gap because there's too many things I'll never be able to do enough and the only way you'll cope and kind of handle it in your own head is if you either lower the standards of justice and you probably do that for your friends and for yourself and say do you know what um, it, it doesn't matter so much for them I'll let them off the hook or or the other thing you'll do is you'll you'll try and pretend you and your friends are a bit better we're not really that bad, so, so we don't need that, that kind of justice. And you'll get annoyed with the God of the Bible because you think he's only pretending when he says he's forgiving. Or he can't really be just because he just gives you all these rules to do. But look, Jesus Christ says that's not the message of the Bible. He does say to you, yes, there is a huge gap. And God is just in holiness but he's also offering forgiveness and the way that happens is not through what you do, but through what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. Jesus gave his perfect life 
and he took the punishment for every sin you committed so that all of God's justice would be satisfied. And he did it so that if you're trusting him, all your sin is paid for and genuine forgiveness can be yours. And as you go on in life, if you, if you find, if you become a Christian and you thought you got that and that was good news, and, but you go on in life and you think, God, God isn't as holy as I thought he was. He, he's much more and I'm not as sinful as I, I thought I was, I'm much worse. The gap is bigger than I thought it was. What's meant to happen is that you're meant to understand the cross is not as big as you thought it was. It's much bigger. It's much, much bigger. It's higher and deeper. And so is his love for you. It reaches right up to satisfying all of God's justice and deep enough to meet the needs of all the forgiveness you need, he can bring you to God justly and forgiven with love, along with, the trans- with transformation. So God really is just, and he really is forgiving. That's how the message of the Bible makes sense. And as you begin to read the Bible, through that lens of the Lord Jesus, you see shadows of him everywhere. You think that's what Jesus is saying to these people at the end of Luke's gospel. The whole Bible's about me. And you think back in Genesis 6, the story of Noah. How is that about Jesus? Or you come to 1 Kings and you, you meet Elijah with the prophets of Baal. There's this weird story. Do, do you know what? They're up on this mountain. God's people have been turning away from him. Elijah builds an altar. There's an animal put on it. He prays and fire falls and burns up. And you think, that's a weird story. How is that about Jesus? And then you think back to that story of Noah and you think, oh, the world was in sin. God was going to judge, but he provided a way of rescue. If you're in the ark, you'll be saved through judgment. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Or you come to that story of Elijah, and you think about the fire falling on the sacrifice, and you think, where should the fire have fallen? It should have fallen on the people, shouldn't it? They're the ones who'd sinned and turned away, but it didn't. It it fell on the sacrifice God provided, and then you go, oh, Jesus is the better ark, isn't he? That's pointing towards him. Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's the one who got burned instead of me. The whole Bible is speaking about him. And when you read the Bible, with Jesus and his cross at the center, you not only find the message doesn't contradict, It gives you confidence. But not in yourself in a way that makes you proud, but confidence in Jesus. Read the Bible with Jesus and his cross at the center. Last thing, read the Bible expecting to meet God. The Bible is undeniably a human book. Lots of authors over uh, many centuries. Is it just people writing about their own experience of God? What we read here... Some people might think what we've got in the Bible, what we read here might be useful, but it's just fallible. It's just other people like us. The idea that this is 
the Bible you've got in front of you is only a kind of bottom-up book, people speaking about God. But you read the Bible, and while not denying that people wrote it, the claim is that something else is going on. You, you get that even here. Verse 32, Jesus had on the journey explained the message of the Bible to them, and without recognizing Jesus physically beside them, something was happening. You see that? This is how they describe it. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the roads and opened the scriptures to us? That burning within, it's almost like a light is being lit under them. And you understand what that's saying is they were having an encounter with God as the scriptures were explained. As the Bible's message was put before them, they were encountering God. He was engaging with them. This book is not just the word of people about God. It is, in fact, God's word to you. You're not just reading about God. He is speaking to you. He is encountering you. You're encountering him. Jesus and the New Testament writers We'll all describe the Bible that way. Here's a couple of examples. Let me just mention that top one. He, here's the writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That second bit, what he's quoting is Psalm 95, written by David hundreds of years before. But what the writer to the Hebrews says is the Holy Spirit, God is speaking through that. If you wanted a, a way of understanding it, it's sometimes called the doctrine of inspiration. A definition of that would be that's the, the supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit upon the human authors such that what they wrote was precisely what God intended them to write in order to communicate his truth. All of which means if you not only want to meet with God, if you want to, if you like, have the light turned on about him, read the Bible. He will meet with you as you do that, hear it preached. Read the Bible as reliable history with Jesus and his cross at the center and expecting to meet with God and you'll grow in confidence in him. We're gonna pause uh, to pray there. We're coming to the part of the service where uh, we're gonna share uh, bread and wine. We're going to Enjoy together what's at the heart of the Bible's message, the Lord Jesus and his saving plan for us. But as we do that, why not take a, a bit of time? It might be you're new to the Bible. A good, a good time maybe just to pray, Lord God, I, I'd like to get to know you better. Please help me to read the Bible this way. Might be like Derek, you've been a Christian for years and years. And you just want to say again, Lord God, thank you for the way you speak. Uh, from your words and uh, keep me listening to you. Let's have a moment to do that uh, before I lead us on.